I'm so glad to be back with you all this morning. I was given the privilege to preach at a church, another local faithful church in Indianapolis, Chinese Community Church of Indianapolis, and in their English service. Um, and it was a delight to be with them and to worship with them, but it's great to be back with you all this morning. The Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot, and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, 
yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. The rapid development of industry, matched by a spike in demand in the late 19th century and early 20th century, made it a prime opportunity to acquire wealth, and a lot of wealth. And one man who capitalized on this opportunity went by the name of John D. Rockefeller. He was the founder of Standard Oil Company, which means he owned about 90% of the entire oil and gas industry. He was America's first billionaire. And at the time of his death, he had a net worth of about 1% of the entire U.S. economy. It's not that the rich make up the 1%, Rockefeller made up 1%. That's how rich he was. He actually wasn't the richest. Carnegie was richer than he was. Regardless, Rockefeller has a great quote. So at one point in his life, Rockefeller was supposedly asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And what did he say back? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Now, that interaction is likely fictitious, as most good quotes are. Whether he said it or not, no one's shocked by his words. If you look at his motives, if you look at his business tactics, if you look at his love for wealth and just the end result, his life exemplified that way of living. And the love of money and the pursuit of money and more and more and more wealth is not unique to Rockefeller. It's not unique to the rich today. Friends, the reality is, is that in life under the sun, everyone is tempted and often falls prey to the love of money. Among the leading factors in taking a new job is not just how much money will you make, but are there opportunities to advance, to continue to make more and more and more? What's the wisdom that is given to many young people considering career paths? Well, you're not going to make any money doing that. Okay. Having wise financial decisions is not wrong. But the motive behind those statements and questions is typically not just, you're not going to have enough money to pay your mortgage, your food, and your gas. It's not, you're not going to have enough money to be, quote, unquote, comfortable. Now, that's a very subjective term, now, isn't it? You're not going to make enough money to be comfortable. And what's happening with these questions, what our culture, and if we are honest, often we ourselves are doing with these questions, is we are placing value, importance, hope, security, ultimately treasure in wealth. What can be called wisdom is often simply a way to attain and maintain wealth. And in our passage this morning, however, 
the preacher directly challenges this way of thinking. Not wise decision-making, but a love for money. He directly challenges, revealing the foolishness of a love for money, and then redirecting us to a right-placed love, a love of God and what he's given us. To sum up what he's saying in 21st century terms is withdraw your love from money and deposit it into your trust in God and his provision. Withdraw your love from money and deposit it into your love of God, your trust in God and his provision. Now to show us this, before I get to the sermon outline, we're going to see that the preacher intricately and intentionally structured this passage to tell us this. And I'm going to be jumping all around this passage, or what seems like I am, but I'm actually not. I'm following his structure. The structure is called a chiasm. Pastor Bill and Pastor Dan have both preached chiasms before, usually in the Psalms, and they always give us a really helpful um, diagram or uh, picture. And so I'm going to try to do the same thing this morning. The main point of a chiasm is that the main point is in the middle. That's the only thing you really need to know. And then outside of that, there are these parallel repeated ideas. So let's look at this chiasm real quick. The first parallel ideas in our text, the very beginning and the very end, chapter 5, verses 8 to 12, and chapter 6, verses 7 to 9, the repeated idea is no satisfaction. All he's going to talk about there is there's no satisfaction. Then the second set of parallels. In chapter 5, verses 13 to 17, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, is this grievous evil. You probably even heard it when I read it. I'm talking about an evil, I talk about what's good, and I talk about evil. It's jarring, right? That's what he's doing. He's repeating himself. In the very middle, chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, a good and fitting thing. This idea of good and fitting is what is a stark contrast to the good and the evil that's around it. So it sets it off as the main point. Now, instead of walking up to the middle point and walking back out and repeating myself, we're going to look at these parallels as groups. So we're going to turn it on its side and we're going to have a little pyramid. The first point, the first step on our pyramid is the love of money will not satisfy. You write down the sermon outline, that's your first point. I know it's on the bottom. The love of money will not satisfy. Then we will see how the love of money is not harmless. The love of money is not harmless. But then finally, in the middle of this passage, the whole point, we'll see that trusting God will lead joy. Trusting God will lead to joy. So let's look at our first step up our pyramid. Verses 9 to 12 in chapter 5, and then chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. In these verses, what we see are four main reasons the love of money will not satisfy. Four reasons. He says a lot. It can be Confusing at points, but there's four big ideas he has here as to why money will not satisfy. The first reason, 
is because it leads to restlessness. It leads to restlessness. The preacher starts this section in somewhat of a strange way. You think, okay, we're going to talk about the love of money. He starts talking about oppression. He starts talking about the poor, not the rich. What's he doing here? Chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Why would he start there? Why would he talk about the oppression of the poor? What he's trying to do is he's trying to point out that the existence of the poor is not happenstance. It's a result of something larger. Specifically, it's the consequence of lovers of money. Of lovers of money. There are high officials, and there are higher ones, and there are higher ones. In America, we would use the word there is bureaucracy, right? He is describing a system in which the high and mighty are looking out for each other. That's the key. The enemy is not bureaucracy, Ron Swanson. It's not the red tape. The enemy is that they watch out for each other. That word used there is the Hebrew word that's used all over the Old Testament for guarding. They protect and they guard one another. Not only do they love money, they love other lovers of money. And the consequence is the oppression of the poor. Ironically, however, they're the ones that lose out. Look down at verse 12. The poor are oppressed, but they get something that the lover of money doesn't get. Sleep. Verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him the first dissatisfaction with money is the restlessness that comes with the love of money. You think you're getting ahead. There's evidence that you are because there's poor around you and you're richer, but they sleep at night because they worked, they ate what they had, and they know tomorrow morning they're going to get up and they're going to go to work and they're going to eat what they have and repeat. And you have to sit and think and worry and stress about all that you have acquired, and probably even worry about the guilt that you carry for the oppression of the poor. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Too easily, we want the four-hour work week, don't we? There's a book published on it, the four-hour work week. We think that more money will lead to less work, more time with our family, more rest, the preacher's like, nah, uh It's the exact opposite. Loving and running after wealth just leads to everything it promises to rid you of. It leads right into restlessness. It leads right into stress. Stress about losing the money. Stress about the market crashing. Unexpected expenses. This is the stress that fills your head and keeps you up at night as one who loves money. As one commentator said, grandeur often pays a nightly penance for the triumph of the day. What a clever phrase. Grandeur often pays a nightly penance 
for the triumph of the day. The love and pursuit of wealth doesn't give you the four-hour work week. It probably gives you about four hours of sleep a week. The first dissatisfaction of the love for money. Second, the love of money is an unending cycle. In verse 10, he explains, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Then, down in chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, specifically verse 7, it sounds like he's talking about eating. No, he's still talking about money. Saying, those, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. You eat, you think you're satisfied, and if you're like me, you take a nap, and you wake up, and you're automatically hungry again. Or maybe you go to bed at night, and you wake up, it doesn't matter. If I sleep and I wake up, I'm hungry again. You eat, you will not be satisfied in four hours. It comes back. You eat, you work to eat, you get hungry again, you have to work more, you eat more, it keeps on going. The love for money is the same. It is an insatiable craving, always returning, wanting a little bit more, a little bigger safety net, one more room on the house, another, another thousand dollars, whatever it might be. A little bit more is never enough. The love of money will not satisfy and you will get hungry again. And not only will you get hungry again, you will become like the fool. The rhetorical question there in verse eight, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? None. It doesn't matter how wise you are, if you have a love for money, your life will look just like the fool's life who has a love for money. There's no purpose difference and there's no end result difference. And then the third reason the love of money will not satisfy is because of the enigma it causes when you see those who do not love money. The second half of verse eight in chapter six, the other question, he says, and what does the poor man have that knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetites. This poor man seemingly is going through life just fine. He's walking among the living, no questions asked, not called a fool, not called a rich man, but life is fine. Then the lover of money looks at him. Why is he happy? Why does he sleep? Why does he have a sense of purpose? Because better is the sight of the eye than the wandering appetite. The love of money will cause an enigma that will dissatisfy you, a confusion to the illusion of your obsession. A lot of Ian's in there. That was good. A confusion to the illusion of your obsession with money. And then the last reason we see here that the love of money will not satisfy is in verse 11 of chapter 5. It will not satisfy because with more money comes more problems. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? The lover of money may find that he is a poorer man when he is rich. That's the point. The more money you have, the more square footage you have, the more maids you need to clean it. The more money you have, the more accountants you need to make sure that you're paying the right amount of taxes or 
paying as few taxes as possible if you're in the U.S. The more money you have, the more children you'll probably have, which means the more mouths you literally have to feed. And the more money you have, the more requests you will receive in the mail about a great ministry opportunity or a great opportunity to serve so-and-so or just your cousin calling you on the phone. Regardless, the more money you have, the more expenses and problems will come up. The lover of money will find himself covered in leeches, if you will. All he gets to do with his money is look at it. Now, I want to be abundantly clear. The enemy is not money. I don't know if you've heard what I've been saying or what the text is saying. The enemy is not wealth. The enemy is the love of money. The problem is not riches. The problem is our fascination with them and our desire for them. The preacher here is concerned with our motives, not our possessions necessarily. He wants to confront our loves, what we set our heart to. He wants to make sure that we don't live our lives with our hearts only set on the riches and treasures of this world. And so a question we should ask ourselves is, well, how do I know I don't have a love for money? Or how do I expose a love for money? We'll take all these dissatisfactions and flip them into questions. Do I believe that wealth is the key to rest? Do I believe wealth is the key to serving others? Do I believe wealth is the key to happiness, to security, to treasure? Do I think that if I had more, then I'll be content? If I have a little bit more and I'm more comfortable, then I can be more happy in life. Do I believe that more money leads to less problems? Now, if we are honest, everyone in this room should answer yes to at least, at least one of those questions. At some point throughout the week, this creeps up in all of us. This isn't a, a MacArthur situation or McCartney early 20th century, the pointy, right, calling out spies in the communist era. This is pointing back at me. This is pointing back at ourselves. We all struggle with these questions. And the problem brothers and sisters, is that the danger of the love of money is not just that you won't be satisfied. The danger is that it blurs your vision of God and his goodness. That's the danger. You're not satisfied because you're looking at what can't satisfy, and now your vision of who God is and his goodness is being blurred by your love of money. This is not a light or trivial matter. When we deposit our love into money, we begin to doubt that God is truly good to us. We begin to doubt that God really knows what I need. We begin to doubt that God will provide what I need. And the result is we begin to think that then, since God's not going to do it, money will. Wealth will provide. We start to treasure the treasures of this world. But Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. 
That's the danger. Where your treasure is, that's where your love is. That's where your heart is. That's where what you want the most is. That's where you find the most satisfaction is found. The point is, the love of money will not only not satisfy, it will give you a new master as well. That's where Jesus goes later in Matthew 6 to say you now have a new master and you cannot serve two masters. You can only serve one. You will love one and you will what the other? You'll hate them. The love of money not only doesn't satisfy, it leads to a disdain of God himself. It is dangerous, friends. This text is a hard text, and it's a long text with a lot of hard stuff in it because it's important, because it's dangerous. The love of money will not satisfy. And when we go down the road of the love of money and we treasure the love of money, we will find on that road there is harm everywhere. There is pain and suffering. Our second point, the love of money is not harmless. Chapter 5, verses 13 to 17. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Here we see three harms of the love of money. Three harms. First, it can all be lost in a moment. And that leads to utter despair. It can all be lost in a moment. And that leads to utter despair. Verses 13 and 14, we see this picture of a man who has been hoarding until it hurts. He's been holding everything he has his whole life. He's loved it. He's held onto it. He's sacrificed for it. And it's all stolen from him on a bad venture. Maybe that's a bad business investment. Maybe it's just economic failure. It could be that the venture against him was bad, as in someone fooled him or robbed him as well. The point is, it doesn't matter how it's gone, it's all gone. And he's held on to all of it for himself. And it's all gone. The harm is the pain and the suffering and even death that such a financial blow brings to people who love money. We know this because, going back to the early 20th century, not only was there a great opportunity to make money, there was a moment where all the money's gone. October 24th, 1929, Black Thursday. Black Thursday, from October 24th to December 31st, the same year, the New York Times reports 100 people took their own lives. In 2008, after the crash of the housing market, business executive after business executive took their own life. Friends, do you see the danger of putting your heart on something that can be stolen from you? What it will do? Because when the wealth dis disappears, so does your heart. So does your life. The hoarder in verse 13 has lost everything. He has nothing, and he has a child he cannot support now. The first harm is the utter loss from financial ruin. The second reason hoarding hurts is because there is no ultimate gain. There is no ultimate gain. In verses 15 and 16, we read, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came 
so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? By the way, a grievous evil. Don't gloss over that adjective there. It's sickening. It's grievous. When you hoard until it hurts, you will realize when you die that you die naked, just like you were born naked. You go from this life with nothing more than you brought into it. Not only will it not satisfy today, it won't go with you tomorrow. And then what happens to it? A stranger enjoys it. Because God didn't give you the joy to enjoy it. Now, that's a strange verse. Why does he say that? We don't know why God doesn't give it, and we don't know how God doesn't give it, but we do know there's, a, there's an importance here. God gives all gifts. He also gives the gift to enjoy it. And if he doesn't give the gift to enjoy it, it's not worth having the gift because someone else is just going to get to enjoy it. Jesus warns us of this as well in Luke chapter 12. He tells the parable of the rich fool. The rich fool had too many crops His barns are not big enough for all the crops he has. Likely, there's enough poor people around him that could also help him eat these crops. But instead, what's the solution? I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. I'm going to build the biggest barns you've ever seen. And he does. And he fills them with all of his crops and all of his goods. In Luke 14, verse 49, 49, he lays down that night and he says, Soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, what? Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? It's almost like Jesus knew Ecclesiastes. The love of money caused the rich fool to put all of his hope in his goods. And do you hear what he said? Because I have ample goods, I can relax, and so on. His heart is completely taken by his goods instead of his good God. And he is not simply a fool because he is unwise, friends. He is a fool because he has been fooled by the goods that he trusts in. All of his striving was really just striving after wind unattainable, and uncapturable. Then last, the final harm of hoarding or a love of money. It is a joyless life in darkness. It is a joyless life in darkness. I already said that God is the one that gives the gift of joy. And so if he doesn't have it, you may have goods, but you have no joy. Chapter 6, verse 2, the preacher says that the grievous evil is that a man has everything And yet he truly doesn't have anything because he has no joy from God to enjoy these good gifts. Then, in the next verse, he illustrates what that looks like. Starting in verse 3, we read, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say, that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything. Yet, it finds rest rather than he. 
even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. In this comparison, this man is the most blessed man in Israelite culture you can imagine. He's lived many years. That's a blessing in Israelite culture. He's fathered a hundred children. That's a blessing in Israelite culture. He has a full quiver, as the Psalms would use the illustration of. He has all the riches. He has all the children. He's living longer than any person has ever lived to be hyperbolic to show he is the man. And yet, a stillborn child, a child who's never seen the day, a child who was conceived in darkness and left in darkness, a child whose name is covered in darkness, meaning no one ever got to know this child. Your name is tied to who you are. No one got to know this child, and maybe even it's forgotten. That child is better off than this man. Why? Because that child has rest. That's his point. That's why he uses this shocking illustration. That child has rest that this man in 2,000 years worth of days never gets to find. He is joyless, eating in darkness, as he says at the end of chapter 5, verse 17, eating in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. The child has gone to rest in darkness, but this man has to live in darkness because of his love for money. The love of money is not harmless. It can be ruinous, ruinously lost to your hurt. There is no ultimate gain. And in the end, the lover of money will spend their days in joyless darkness. These are the harms of the love of money that I think our culture probably doesn't talk about. You don't get on Instagram and see people talking about you know, this brand new whatever car or whatever house in Malibu or wherever people want to live now, this brand new vacation has left me feeling so empty and disappointed in life. No. They're young, they're rich, and they're happy. You don't watch HGTV and see people doing home remodels and being so disappointed and like, man, I have to pay more taxes on this larger property now, and I have to now clean this and maintain it, and really it costs more than it should have because the market's inflated. Like, no, they're just happy. They're just happy. Everybody's happy. The American dream, what we've worked so hard for, right? All the joy that comes with the white picket fence. Koheleth tells us it's vanity because it can't give us the satisfaction we want. But the good news, friends, you've been waiting for 30 minutes for this good news. The good news is that there is satisfaction in this life under the sun. There is satisfaction. The preacher is not just saying, stop loving money. He's exposing it and he's exhorting us to a greater love, a greater love where our whole hearts are set to God and his provision. Look with me at chapter, or chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. We're going to read verse 18 specifically. Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting. What is good and fitting, preacher? To eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under sun, the sun the few days of his life 
that God has given him, for this is his lot. The word for lot. This is his um, portion in the Old Testament. Actually, in Phil's prayer, he prayed a few, an Asaph prayer and a Davidic prayer from the Psalter where he talks about my portion, same word for lot, and what's he put it in parallel with? My inheritance. The life that you have is what God has deemed to give to you as your possession, as your portion, as your inheritance. It is good and fitting to eat, drink, and enjoy our work. We've seen this phrase, I think, three times now. I think this is the fourth. It's either the fourth and there's five, or this is the third and there's four. Regardless, it seems to be a popular phrase among this preacher. Why? Because he's trying to help us understand. Repetition is the only way he's going to do it. Trying to help us understand. The remedy to life under the sun is not gritting your teeth and getting through it. The remedy to life under the sun is not putting your head down, just getting by. It's not becoming an ascetic and not enjoying the riches of the world. The remedy is the opposite. It's to enjoy. It's to have joy and rejoice in what you do have. It is contentment. Enjoying the sight of the eyes instead of having, having a wandering appetite. In these three verses, we read some form of the word joy three times. Seems to be an important word for three verses to have it three times. He says, to have enjoyment, to rejoice, and to have joy in his heart. The point is, the way we wage war against our love for money is with joy in what the Lord has given us. We do, how do we fight the love of money when it creeps into our hearts? How do we expose its lies, pull off its mask? We enjoy the food and drink that we have and the work that we have. Whether it's McDonald's or St. Elmo's, whether it's Dr. Pepper or, well, whether it's water or Dr. Pepper, because there's nothing better than Dr. Pepper. Whether it's water or Dr. Pepper, whether it's cleaning toilets or running a business, it doesn't matter what it is, every bite you enjoy it. Every single one of the 23 delicious, beautiful flavors of Dr. Pepper you enjoy. And every day of work, day in and day out, you realize it's a gift from God. The foundation of this joy, though, because at the end of the day, when I eat McDonald's, I would much rather eat St. Elmo's. Well, I haven't had it yet. One day, I will. Regardless, I'd much rather have a steak. When I drink water, I'd much rather be drinking Dr. Pepper. The foundation is not the gifts themselves. This is where the preacher, again, is trying to turn us change us. The foundation of this joy is not found in the thing, it's found in the giver. Where the love of money places its joy is the thing. It's the possessions, it's the house, it's the money, it's the whatever. But the preacher wants us to take our eyes off of the thing and look up. Look up and see the one who's giving the good things. The good gift giver. He is the reason that we find enjoyment and that we rejoice and have a heart full of joy. Look at the text, verses 18 to 20. Our lot is given by him. The few days that we have, our lot is given by him. Verse 19, <clears throat> twice, first he says the wealthy have their possessions because it's given to them by God along with their ability to enjoy it. And then he just repeats himself. 
It's a gift of God. And then lastly, why are we occupied with joy in our hearts in verse 20? Because God keeps us occupied. He gives us the joy in our hearts. <laughs> Four times in three verses, he wants you to hear, enjoy these things because God gives them to you. Enjoy them because of who is giving them to you. Paul picks this up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, sound a little bit like Koheleth, but on God who richly provides, who richly provides us with everything, everything he gives us to enjoy. Again, like Paul has read Ecclesiastes, God has given it and he has given it to be enjoyed. So enjoy it as a gift knowing that it's not the treasure but the tool. What you have is not the treasure but the tool. God is the treasure worth trusting. The good gift giver, the one who knows all that you need and gives it to you freely, happily, and joyfully for you to enjoy. He's the true treasure worth trusting. And we see this because he has given us the greatest treasure we can ever imagine. We've been singing about it all morning. Ultimately, we see this in Jesus, the ultimate provision that we have to enjoy forever, right? Jesus is God's treasured son, his beloved son, his treasured son, he deserves all the riches in the world. He who was rich did what? He made himself poor. He stripped himself of his riches so that we, poor enemies, lovers of money, can become the treasured possession of God. His treasured son dies for his enemies to make them his treasured children forever. We are the ultimate example of people who get daddy's money, right? We don't deserve any of it. And he gives it to us without us even asking for it. He treasured his son and he gave him to us so he can treasure us. By grace, through faith, in the Lord Jesus, our hearts find their treasure. How rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord his blood, our ransom and defense, his glory, our reward, the sum of all created things. What are they? Worthless in compare. For our inheritance is him whose praise angels declare. Do we understand this unbelievable exchange, friends? Do we see the treasure that he is? Or are we so distracted by the treasures that we think we need. Friends, when we see him for the treasure he is, because of the treasure he's made us, another illustration of the Bible is we are his bride that he died for, that he yearns for, that he's going to return for. How treasured do you feel? He yearns for you. When we understand that, we metaphorically run to the bank and withdraw all of our love from the treasures of the world so we can deposit into him and all of our trust in him because he is the treasure that deserves our trust. The point of this text, the message for us this morning, friends, you're going to write anything down or remember anything. Riches 
are not bad. Wealth is not an enemy in of itself. All these things are gifts from God. We must watch out for our hearts. That's the warning this morning. Watch out for our hearts. Do we trust the treasures of the world or do we trust the one who treasures us? Do we look for the abundance of life that the world's treasures offer or do we look to the one who came to give the life to the abundant, to the full? Christian, don't let the love of money blur your vision of God and distract your heart from the true treasure. What that might mean is you might have to get off TikTok or you might have to get off Instagram or you might have to reevaluate the, under, the way you understand retirement and need. You might have to stop worrying of so much or trusting, how about this, stop putting so much trust in safety nets. Whatever it is, don't let those things distract you from your true hope, security, and treasure because they blur the goodness of Jesus. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Some of the best words of Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with those words. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're looking to the treasures of the world. If you haven't already, if you haven't figured it out already, the Bible's gonna tell you they will disappoint. They will not satisfy and they will harm you. This is because not because they're worthless in of themselves, again, but because they can't give you what your heart really wants, what your heart's really searching for. Ultimately, it's because they can't love you back. You can love your savings account all you want, but it doesn't love you. It's not gonna stand by you and stick by you. But friend, Jesus welcomes you, and he will give you everything that your heart desires not in a worldly sense, but everything it truly desires that you don't really know it does. Because he gives you everything your heart needs. Because he gives you joy, whether you're in want or you're in plenty. Because you have joy in the life that he's given you. He gives you peace, because he gives you ultimate peace with God. He gives you rest from all of the searching of this world by giving you contentment in him, knowing I don't have to look and run. I can rest in what I have. He gives you hope. Hope to face whenever that bank account is empty and that bill does come. He gives you a family that will help you and encourage you and love you. And he gives you love that's never ceasing, no matter how much money you have or you don't. He ultimately gives you purpose in life under the sun. The world promises to give a taste of it, but friend, Jesus will give it to you because he will make you his treasured possession, the treasure possession of God. And one day, friends, to all of us, the beauty is, is that he gives us all these gifts to enjoy, but they're just foretaste. They're hors d'oeuvres, if you will. They're not even that. They're shadows. Because the true treasure awaits us. We will stand on that golden shore, and we will look across it, and we will see his face. We will see our true treasure. So, Christian, let us look to that day. Let us hope 
and our true treasure. Let us seek to see him, to know him, and to love him, and to not become blurred or distracted by the treasures of this world. They will not satisfy, they will hurt us, but he calls us his treasure, and we can call him ours. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for a text that confronts us, that exposes the loves that we have of this world, the distractions that we suffer from, and that sometimes we welcome. Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, work in this truth of your word into our hearts. Help us to see Jesus as the true treasure. Help us to love him and yearn for him. Help us to use the good gifts you have given us to enjoy and to help others enjoy them. Father, help us to bless others through the good gifts that you give us. Help us to rejoice in the good gifts that you give us. Help us to show your glory through all that we have, knowing that it is for that purpose, to remind us of you and to show you to others. Father, we pray that you would do all these things so that Christ, the true treasure, would be seen and known and enjoyed. Riches we heed not, nor man's empty praise. Father, help us to sing this with all of our heart. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.